Please open your Bibles to Matthew 24, verse 36. Our passage for this morning is Matthew 24, 36 to 44. One day in the not-too-distant future, you're going to see Jesus. Do you ever stop to think about that? Can you picture what that moment is going to be like? I have to confess, a lot of times it doesn't seem real to me. Don't get me wrong, I I don't mean that it seems unlikely or something like that. I'm not saying I doubt that I'll see Him. I know I will. It's just it feels so distant that it almost feels like it's never going to happen. You know, there are moments in your life that are so big and momentous and life-altering that before they actually arrive, it's hard to imagine that they're ever going to come. When I think back on my life, I can think of three major events that really stick out in this way in my mind. The first was the day I first started to drive. I can remember growing up thinking to myself, that's when I'll become an adult. When someone hands me the keys to a two-ton vehicle with a couple hundred horsepower, sits me behind the wheel and says, okay, now turn on the ignition. I knew my life would change forever after that moment. So growing up, I couldn't wait for that day to come. and It just felt like it never would. When I was 12 or 13, I had a hard time picturing that I would ever actually drive a car. I knew I would. I'd eventually be old enough and I'd learn to drive just like everyone else. I just had a hard time picturing the reality of that moment. The experience was just too foreign to me. The responsibility seemingly too great. Eventually, though, that day did come. And I still remember quite vividly pulling out of the high school parking lot during driver's ed, the Wisconsin snow falling down onto the windshield, the feeling of panic as I passed by the first car on the street, which was way too close, It's something I doubt I'll ever forget. The second major event was the day I proposed to Emily. Or you could lump our wedding day into that as well. Getting married, going off to live in my own home with my wife, it's something I always figured would happen. Though I have to say there were times in high school and college I probably had my doubts. Still, I figured it would happen, but again, it just didn't seem like that moment would ever actually arrive in my life. Again, it was just too big of change. The experience was too different and the responsibility so great that I just couldn't figure out what series of events would end up with me actually getting married. And yet on a spring morning about 11 years ago, I picked up Emily for a picnic down at Fall Creek Falls in Tennessee, wedding ring in the basket. And I can still remember thinking as we drove, is this really happening? Is today Really, the day I become engaged to the woman I'm going to spend the rest of my life with? A few months later, when Emily came around the corner on our wedding day, and I saw in her wedding dress for the first time, it was the same thing. My first thought was, wow, is she beautiful? And then my second was, is this really happening? Is this the day that I've been waiting for? Of course, it did happen, and it was the day I'd been waiting for. The third major event was the birth of our first child. And once again, I always figured that I would probably have kids one day. Once Emily was pregnant, that became more of a certainty than an assumption. But even still, even all the way through that first pregnancy, it just didn't seem real. I mean, I knew in a few months we'd be bringing a child home. It just never happened before. And so as much as you figure it will happen, you just can't picture that it will really take place. It's a strange thing having a kid. There's nothing really to fully prepare you for. There's not this buildup of events or experiences that get you ready for that moment, especially the first one. You simply go into the hospital, and in a matter of a few hours, or perhaps even a few minutes, sometimes in our case, you have this new label slapped onto you, dad. Or if you're a lady, mom. Your identity, in a sense, changes, and it changes very abruptly. There's hardly any lead up or to signal or prepare you for it. I think that's actually what made the driving thing and the marriage thing such hard things to envision beforehand as well. I knew I was entering a new stage of life once I started to drive. It was in my mind the moment I became an adult. When I was married, I was no longer just a guy. I was someone's husband. 
You have these new titles slapped onto you. And with these titles, there's this whole set of new experiences, new responsibilities, new challenges, new joys, almost a whole new life. And you're suddenly expected to live that out. It all changes in a moment. And until that moment arrives and you have those responsibilities and those joys transferred to you, there's just no way to fully envision what that life is like. And it's hard to picture all of that attached to you. And yet with all the examples I just mentioned, there's also this sense of inevitability that leads you to anticipate those moments. You know, take the birth of our first child. I knew that day was coming for about nine months. And every day I saw the due date drawing nearer at a relentlessly determined pace. And so I knew that no matter what, these events were going to happen eventually. And that meant I could look forward to that day, even if the unique nature of that event still made it feel like it would never actually come. Anyways, those are some of the moments that I felt like would never come. I imagine you have your own, and while the circumstances would obviously be quite different, I gather you know what I'm talking about when I explain how hard it was to believe that those days would ever come. Well, understand, this is how it is with Jesus. This is how it will be with Jesus. Every day you wake up with every passing breath, the moment when you will see Jesus draws closer and closer. Like a train coming down the tracks from over the horizon, you can see it coming at a relentless and determined pace. Its arrival is inevitable. It can't be stopped. And it probably doesn't feel very real right now. How could it, right? You don't have anything to judge that experience by. There's no way to completely measure the life you will live then against the life you live now. Not until you experience it. But it's coming. One day you're going to be lying in your deathbed and and you'll realize this is it. This is really happening. I've, I've known death was coming and now it's finally here. And then in a moment you'll close your eyes in this life and for the last time and open them in the next for the first time. Or supposing the Lord returns before that day, you'll be going about your business and then you'll suddenly be translated up into the air to meet Him in the clouds. Whichever the case, you'll be changed in a moment. And you'll enter into this new way of life. That experience which you felt would never really come will have come. And it will be your new reality for eternity. In fact, I don't know if you ever look back on memories so distant that they seem like, they, that like they're from a different lifetime. That's how I look at those teenage years today when I was looking forward to drive, when I couldn't wait to get my driver's license. The situation is kind of flipped now. Now the memory is so faded, looking back on those days, it almost feels like that it wasn't real. Well, I imagine that's how real the moment will be when we see Jesus. The change will be so vivid and permanent that by comparison, it will almost make this life look like the dream. It will feel just as real, perhaps even more real, than the moment you're experiencing right now. That day is coming. It will happen. You're going to see the Lord Jesus in bodily form. The man that you've been reading about in the Scriptures, he's not a fictional character, nor is he merely a historical character. No, you're going to be in his presence. A man more powerful and famous than any other that the world has ever known, the very Creator of the heavens and the earth, is going to stand before you and look you in the eye and speak to you face to face. And it will be as real as me standing before you today. That day's coming. It will happen. The question is, are you ready for it? The disciples wanted to be ready for that moment. And this seems to be the motivator, at least in part, for the questions they ask in the beginning of the Olivet Discourse. You'll recall at the beginning of Matthew 24, Jesus responded to the disciples' remarks over the temple by telling them, that the entire structure, one of the most impressive and imposing structures in the whole of the ancient world, was going to be stripped down to its very foundations. In that moment, the disciples rightly perceived that Jesus was speaking about the 69th and 70th weeks of Daniel chapter 9. 
Daniel said there would be 70 periods of seven years called weeks before the time of the Gentiles would conclude and Israel would be restored. The Messiah reappears after the conclusion of the 69th week. And according to Daniel 9.26, quote, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. This would then be followed by the 70th and final week, which is described in Daniel as a time of great trouble for the people of Israel. As the disciples contemplate the destruction of the temple, what they want to know is, when is, all this, when is all of this going to take place? Give us a chronological framework for these events. The request for this framework comes in the form of two questions. First, the disciples want to know, when will these things be? That is, when is all of this going to take place? This question goes back to the destruction of the temple in part. But more broadly, it's about the timing of the 70th week as a whole. Keep in mind, in Daniel 9, the 69th and 70th weeks run together almost as if they occur back to back. Now, a close reading of the text indicates that they can't really happen back to back. After all, Daniel 9.26 says that the temple will be destroyed in the 69th week, and then Daniel 9.27, or at the conclusion of the 69th week, and then in Daniel 9.27 it says that in the middle of the 70th week, the Antichrist shall put an end to sacrifice and offering before erecting the abomination of desolation. Considering that it took seven years to build the first temple under ideal conditions, it would seem that the temple would have to be rebuilt after the 69th week, 69th week and after this total destruction of Jerusalem. And it stands to reason that there has to be some measure of time then that passes between the 69th and 70th weeks. Even still, the text doesn't necessarily read that way. The weeks appear right on top of one another. And so when the disciples ask about the timing of the temple's destruction, this is really the larger question they have in mind. They want to know, when does the time of the tribulation begin? We know the sequence. Tell us the time frames. When will all these things take place? And then second, they want to know, what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? Jesus has already spoken of his departure on more than one occasion. Three of the four men who are asking this question even witnessed Elijah and Moses speaking to him about his departure. Likewise, the book of Daniel indicates that the one who comes like a son of man appears after the coming of the Antichrist in order to destroy his kingdom. So they can figure that there's got to be some kind of leaving that must take place, even if they haven't figured out what that leaving looks like just yet. What they want to know with the second question is, when are you going to come back and put a stop to the tribulation? When are you going to restore all things? Keep this in mind. They're not just asking about the tribulation alone. They're asking about Jesus' return. So they're asking these two questions, both of which are about the very end of the age. And it would seem that the reason why they're asking this question is because they're wondering how to prepare for that moment. They want to know when the tribulation is going to start up so they can make plans for it, so that they can prepare for it. Daniel said it was going to be a time of trouble for Israel such as never has been experienced by any other nation throughout the history of the earth. They want to know how to get ready for that. They want to know as well about Jesus' return so they can prepare for that too. Considering the intense persecution of the tribulation, perhaps they're even wondering how long it's going to take. Perhaps so they know what kind of provisions they need to set aside. Point is, they realize there's this gap of time between now and Jesus' return, and they're already trying to calculate what sort of steps they need to take in the interval. Up to this point, Jesus has described many of the signs that will precede His coming. Now in today's passage, He gets around to answering their first question, which is, when will these things be? And as he answers this question, he begins to instruct his disciples concerning how they should prepare for his coming. Let's go ahead and read the passage together. Matthew 24, 36 to 44. Jesus says, But concerning that day and hour no one knows, not even the angels of heaven, nor the Son, but the Father only. For as were the days of Noah, so will be the coming of the Son of Man. For as in those days before the flood they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will be the coming of the Son of Man. Then two men will be in the field. One will be taken and one left. 
Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one left. Therefore stay awake, for you do not know at what day your Lord is coming. But know this, that if the master of the house had known in what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let his house be broken into. Therefore you also must be ready, for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. Once again, in this section, Jesus begins to answer the disciples' question about the timing of the tribulation, as well as explore the implications to that answer. The disciples want to know when these things will take place, and what Jesus explains here is that no one knows when they will take place. Jesus has already answered the question about the signs of His coming and of the end of the age, at least for the most part. He started with the the general turmoil that will arise on the earth at that time, which will be accompanied by intense persecution and a significant apostasy in the church. Then He says, comes the abomination of desolation and Israel's flight into the wilderness. Many, Jesus says, will try to mislead believers at that time in order to bring them out of hiding. However, He says, don't believe them. He says, for when the Son of Man comes, He's going to come with such a flash of brilliance against a totally darkened sky, that there's going to be no mistaken when He's come. So, learn the lesson of the fig tree, Jesus says. Just as you know, summer is near when the fig tree starts showing its leaves, so also you know uh, when you see these signs that the Son of Man is near. That's Jesus' answer to the first question. The coming of the Son of Man at the end of the age will be accompanied by those signs. Now Jesus turns His attention back to the first question. He says, but concerning, or rather now concerning. The idea is that he's, he's changing points and he's moving on to a new topic. He's discussed the signs that will accompany the end. He's wrapped up that explanation in verses 32 to 35 with the lesson of the fig tree. Now he's moving on to a new topic. He's going to explain what they need to know about when these things will be. And again, the basic thrust of his answer is that the timing of that day is entirely unknown. This is actually part of the reason why we know Jesus is changing subjects in verse 36 and not describing His return at the conclusion of the tribulation, which He just described back in verses 29 to 31. Jesus just talked about His return at the end of the tribulation, and here in verses 37, 39, 42, and 44, He talks about His coming again. However, he can't be talking about the same events because not only did he wrap up that former instruction with the lesson of the fig tree in verses 32 to 35, but the whole point of that lesson is that his final return will be highlighted by many signs that will proceed and announce its coming in short order. Here, though, Jesus says that, quote, that day and hour is not known by anyone. Not by the angels, and in fact, not even by Jesus himself. That can't be talking about the, the, just the day of his final return at the end, because there are going to be many signs warning about that. The day and hour that Jesus is talking about here, though, will be totally unexpected. He even compares it to the days of Noah, when people are going about their business as usual, all the way up until the heavens burst open and the great flood begins. That's how that day and hour will be as well. It will be totally unexpected. This seems to indicate that when Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man in this passage, He's talking about the entire day of the Lord event. He's talking about the whole day of the Lord, the great tribulation. The disciples want to know when these things will be and what will be the signs of Jesus coming. Jesus says, on one hand, once that day begins, there are going to be many signs that will precede my return. And they look like this. And he goes on and he fills that in. And then he shifts gears and he says, now concerning that day itself, no one knows that day. And there won't be any signs to proceed that will warn you when it's coming. It's going to be like the days of Noah, Jesus says. People are going to be going about their business as usual and then, boom, Before they know it, the day of the Lord will be upon them. That's the basic thrust of Jesus' answer. While His return will be preceded by many signs during the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord itself will be totally unexpected. In fact, if you look down in verses 42 and 43, you'll notice that Jesus compares it to a thief coming in the night. The point being that just as a thief doesn't announce his attentions before he robs a house, so it will be in that day and hour. 
Well, that's a very unique illustration. In fact, it's not repeated in any prophetic passage of the Old Testament or in any extra-biblical Jewish literature. Jesus is essentially coining the phrase here in the Olivet Discourse. When you jump over to 1 Thessalonians 4, and as Paul explains the rapture, he explains that he is declaring this doctrine, quote, by a word from the Lord. Meaning that it comes from Jesus' own personal instruction. And that can seem strange if, as so many suppose, Jesus never explicitly discussed the rapture during His ministry. You drop down to 1 Thessalonians 5, 2, however, and it all starts to come into focus. Paul says there, quote, The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. That, only, that, uh, that not only gives us a hint as to where Paul is getting his information about the rapture, but it also clarifies for us what Jesus is referring to over in Matthew 24 when he says, No one knows that day and hour. He's talking about the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Meaning it will come totally unannounced and entirely unexpected. Again, that's the basic thrust of this passage. Now, what makes this interesting is how Jesus begins to apply this fact. You remember how a few weeks back I said one of the challenges of eschatology is that you have to make all these passages which seem to point in different directions fit together at the same time. Well, that's what you have here as Jesus begins to work out the implications of the sudden, unexpected arrival of the day of the Lord. Taking what he has discussed in the discourse so far, this implication doesn't seem to fit what he's just described. Look at what he says in verse 42. He says, therefore, stay awake. That's the application of his point. Stay awake, he says. For you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. He then gives a similar application in verse 44 after the thief analogy when he says, Therefore, you must be ready for the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. The point in both instances is that the disciples need to be ready for His coming. They need to be vigilant. They need to be watchful. What's odd about this is that earlier in the discourse, Jesus told His disciples not to prepare for the persecution that they'll endure at that time, because God will equip them for what they need to do and say in that hour. So Jesus can't be saying, be ready for the day of the Lord, in the sense of, steal yourself with faith and courage, or prepare yourself with the knowledge you'll need to survive that day, because He's already condemned, actually, that kind of preparation earlier in the discourse. So what does He mean by be ready? And stay awake. What do the disciples have to be ready for? Again, it can't just be about His return at the end of the tribulation. Like, Jesus can't be warning them about the time that He'll come back to judge the earth because He's already said that that event will be preceded by many signs that warn about His coming. No, the warning here isn't about His coming at the very end of the day of the Lord. Rather, it's about the day of the Lord itself. The disciples have to be watchful because the day of the Lord itself will come suddenly and without signs. As we just saw, when Jesus talks about His coming here, it's a reference to the entire event of the day of the Lord, which culminates in His coming in judgment. So when He says, Be ready, the Son of Man is coming at an hour you don't expect. That's not a reference to the very end of the day of the Lord when Jesus comes back to judge the earth but a reference to the whole event. The whole event is the hour you don't expect. So again, he can't be telling the disciples to be ready for the judgment at the end of the day of the Lord. So what's he telling them to be ready for? If it's neither the persecution that will occur during the day of the Lord, nor the judgment that will happen when Jesus comes back at the end, what's he telling them to get ready for? I think we find the answer in verses 40 and 41. You remember how a moment ago I said that 1 Thessalonians 4 says that Paul received his instruction about the rapture by a word from the Lord? And do you remember how I said that this reference to the thief in the night gives us a clue as to where that instruction comes from? Well, I think this is it. I think the basis for Paul's instruction about the rapture can be traced back here. The verses 40 and 41 of Matthew 24. 
The way these two verses are typically preached is as a continuation of the Noah comparison that comes right before it. The idea is that just as in the days of Noah, the flood swept away the unrighteous and left the righteous to repopulate the earth, so it will be at the coming of the Son of Man. He will come and judge the unrighteous. They will be removed from the earth. The righteous will then be left to repopulate the earth. The interpretation is aided by the fact that in several major translations, including the NASB, the NIV, and the King James, the word that's translated as swept here is instead translated as took. As took. Verses 38 to 41, for instance, are translated in the New American Standard like this. For as in those days which were before the flood, they were eating and drinking, they were marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark, and they did not understand that uh, until the flood came and took them all away, took them all away, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. Then there shall be two men in the field, one will be taken and one will be left. Two women will be grinding at the mill, one will be taken and one will be left. I mean, that certainly makes it sound like a continuation of the same concept, right? There are two major problems with this interpretation, though. The first is that the word for swept away or took in verse 39 is not the same as the word for taken in verses 40 and 41. In verse 39, the word is iro, which means something like taken away or removed, which is a fitting description of the judgment expressed in the flood. The word in verses 40 and 41 is paralambano. That's a compound word made up of lambano, which means to receive, and the prefix para, which means something like beside or to the side of. You put it together and you get paralambano, which means something like to receive or to take along with. In other words, that's a, there's a completely different connotation for paralambano than there is for Iro. For example, when the angels tell Joseph not to be afraid to take Mary as his wife, the word for take is paralambano in the Greek. That's the word we see in verses 40 and 41. When Jesus tells his disciples to take two or three witnesses with them in the second stage of church discipline in Matthew 18, the word once again is paralambano. There are already there are, there, are, uh, there are totally different meanings to the word. Iro carries the connotation of removed in verse 38, whereas paralambano means something more like received in verses 40 and 41. One will be received and the other left. The second major problem that occurs when you say that verses 40 and 41 refer to the final judgment at the end is the context. Remember, Jesus says that this event is very sudden and totally without warning. He even concludes right after this in verse 42, Therefore stay awake, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. The problem, as we've already noted several times, is that the final coming of Jesus in judgment is accompanied by many signs that will warn of its coming. So it just doesn't fit for Jesus to refer to a taking in judgment there. I think the better way of understanding these verses is to see them as a reference to the rapture. In other words, Jesus warns of the sudden onset of the day of the Lord in verses 37 to 39. And then in verse 40, he begins to talk about the two men in the field, and he's changing subjects. Or perhaps more precisely, he's moving on to a new point. He's explaining an additional detail about that day, which informs the disciples as to why they need to be ready. And I think the grammar supports this idea. The word for then in verse 40 is the word tote. It can mean, and it can mean either then, as in next in sequence, as in this will happen and then that, or it can mean at that time. As in, this will happen then at that time. And I think the better fit is at that time. Jesus isn't saying, the Son of Man comes, and then after that one is taken and one will be left. No, He's saying, at that time. He's saying, when the Son of Man comes, one will be taken and one left. In other words, after talking about the suddenness of the onset of the day of the Lord, Jesus shifts gears and He explains why the disciples need to be ready in light of that fact by saying... Listen, you need to be ready because at that time, one will be taken and one left. And it's not necessarily at the end that that taking is going to occur. Rather, considering that the warning coincides with the sudden onset of the day of the Lord, it can really be at any point within that event. 
I've already explained my position on the rapture just a few weeks ago, so I won't rehash it here, but suffice to say, I believe the Scripture teaches an imminent rapture. Not necessarily a pre-tribulational rapture, but an imminent rapture, meaning I believe that the Scripture says that the rapture could happen at the onset of the day of the Lord, or at really any point within the tribulation, all the way up to the bold judgments at the very end. And I think that's what Jesus is describing here. He's telling the disciples the day of the Lord can happen at any moment, and without warning, And at that time, God is going to deliver His people from His final expression of wrath. He's not being specific as to when that gathering together is going to occur. Again, at that time could certainly mean at the beginning of the event, which means the rapture would come without any warning whatsoever, or it could happen somewhere within the event itself. Either way, Jesus is telling the disciples, you need to watch for that day. You need to be ready for the day of the Lord. Because at any point within that time, but definitely before the end, there's going to be a sudden deliverance from wrath for God's people, and you don't want to miss out on that event. I think this point is also supported by the meaning of the word left in verses 40 and 41. The word for left in verses 40 and 41 is the word ephemi. It actually means something like to let go, or even to send away. For example, Paul uses it with reference to a divorce certificate in 1 Corinthians 7.11. The one who sends away his wife affames her. In some instances, the word even means something like permit or tolerate. Point is, it doesn't carry the connotation of someone remaining on after the judgment. Rather, it means something more like abandoned. The person who is ephemed is left alone. The picture is less of one surviving the judgment and more of God handing them over to it. He's distanced himself from them. He's left them alone. He's seeking their preservation no more. He's abandoned them. He's letting them go their own way, meaning they're resigned to judgment. You see, Jesus isn't talking about his return at the very end. He can't be talking about his return at the very end, since that will be preceded with signs that warn of the coming destruction. And what Jesus is describing is here is a very sudden onset of destruction without signs, which the disciples need to be ready for so they can escape wrath. That's not a reference to Jesus' final return in judgment. It's a reference to his return to collect his people before the final judgment. He's telling his disciples, be ready for the day of the Lord. Because at that time, I'll come to deliver my saints before the final expression of wrath, and you don't want to be left behind when that happens. This is why Paul can explain the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and say that he declares it by a word from the Lord. He's referring back to the Olivet Discourse. Jesus told his disciples about the rapture then. Paul's just passing that information along. What this means is that Jesus is really giving two answers to the disciples' question about the end of the age. They want to know how to be ready for Jesus' coming. And so they ask Him, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And if you note there, they're assuming that the last two things go together. The sign of the coming and of, uh, his, uh, Jesus' coming and the end of the age. The sign, singular, sign of your coming and of the end of the age indicates that they think those two events are simultaneous. And in one sense, they're right. That's what Daniel predicted. And Jesus explains that he will indeed return in judgment at the end of the age. They are simultaneous in one sense. But understand that the question that the disciples are asking is driven by a motivation to be ready for that day. Then there's something unexpected that Jesus needs to bring his disciples into the loop on. You see, before Jesus coming in judgment... He's actually going to come and deliver His saints from the final expression of that wrath. So if the question is about how to be ready, then they have to know about that. They have to know about this coming of Jesus to receive His disciples to Himself, which takes place before the end. That's the event that they have to watch for. They need to be ready for that coming. Not the one that comes at the end in judgment. The only problem is that there are no signs to foretell that deliverance. It simply comes at that time, meaning somewhere in relation to the day of the Lord. And the day of the Lord comes without any warning. Hence, if the disciples are curious about how to prepare for the end, this is Jesus' answer. He says, be ready. Be vigilant at all times. Because the deliverance that you need to be looking for, 
That can happen at any moment. So there's the basic doctrine about the end. There's Jesus' answer to when these things will be. The end will be immediate and unexpected. And when the day arrives, Jesus will come to deliver his saints from the wrath of God. Now, Jesus has a very specific set of applications or implications and applications to this doctrine, which we'll dig into next week as we unpack the parable of the wise and the wicked servants and the parable of the ten virgins. For right now, I just have you walk away from today's message with this. Hope. Hope. I want you to think a moment about who you were, in a sense, even who you still are. And I want you to think about what Jesus has done for you. To put it plain and simple, you're a sinner. Each and every one of you are. You've all rejected the worship of God as expressed in your disobedience to His commands. And do you know what that makes you? Just in your natural state? It makes you unworthy. I know we hear that all the time, and I doubt very many of you have trouble accepting that label. So let me put it a little bit more bluntly. You're dirty in His sight. God looks down on the perfect creation He's made, and do you know what He sees when His holy eyes look upon your sin? He sees a blemish, an imperfection. He sees something that doesn't deserve to belong in His presence. Are you catching here? Catching me here? God, God is too good for you. I mean, to put it in human terms, when God looks on your sin, His visceral reaction is revulsion. He's repulsed. And it's not even like a disgusting kind of revulsion. It's not so much that He's grossed out by your sin. No, it actually makes Him angry. He looks on you and your sin, and it's so out of place in His creation, so contrary to the purposes for which you are made, that it infuriates Him. And that would all sound arrogant or haughty if it weren't true, but it's true. Everyone in this room who is made in the image of God were made, and that's all of you, right? Every one of you has been made as a vice regent over this earth with the specific responsibility to glorify God with every ounce of your being by praising Him for His excellence, venerating Him with your obedience, and by receiving every good and perfect gift that He gives with joy and thankfulness. And do you know what you did instead? You turned around and worshipped idols. You gave them glory as you sought your satisfaction in them rather than in God. And this means that every single one of us is a spiritual Benedict Arnold. We're traitors of the very worst kind. We are all Judas. So let's get this straight. You, You objectively, objectively, you do not belong in His presence. You deserve, rather, to be plunged into hell for your wickedness. And if you were thinking rightly about it, you'd freely admit it. The very thought of it, of you standing in God's presence, would actually offend you. In a sense, it's wrong. It's unjust. But here's the amazing thing that God has done. While God has looked at you in that state, anger writhing over the injustice of your actions, He yet determined, I'm going to save them. I have a plan by which these traitors might be forgiven of their sin. I'm going to make them worthy to enter into my presence. Even more than this, I'm going to transfer them into my own family. I'm going to treat them as sons and daughters. And then he set that plan in motion. And you know what it cost him to make that plan a reality? It cost him his own son. God looked down on what I think may fairly be described as the most despicable object in all of creation on account of uh, of who we were and what we did. And He redeemed it. He pulled it out of the garbage heap and washed it and made it clean and made it a fitting vessel for His house once again. And He did this at the cost of the one object that He values more than anything else in all the creation, and that's His own Son. He offered up His own Son to face the fullness of His wrath so that you the traitor deserving of His wrath that you are, that you might go free and become a co-inheritor of His kingdom. Isn't that remarkable? 
Isn't that a remarkable love? And Jesus, Jesus, He went willingly. He went eagerly. The fury that you deserve to receive from God, He absorbed it in your place so that you might be allowed to enter into the presence of God. And understand, He didn't do this because of your great love for Him. No, He did it while you still rejected Him. Figuratively speaking, He did it while you held the hammer and nails in your hand and nailed Him to the cross. Again, isn't that remarkable? I mean, just think for a second how hard it is to love, how hard it is to really love someone else. I don't just mean like someone else. It's easy to like people, but to show them real love, where you actually sacrifice your good for theirs. I have a hard time doing that for people I like. Forget about my enemies. Right? I mean, just think of how hard it is. Think of how hard it is at times just to pick up the phone and call someone you don't like to check in and see how they're doing. There's no great cost there. But how reluctant are you sometimes just to perform that very simple and easy task? Well, Jesus died for you. And not when you were lovable. There was nothing lovable or pleasing about you when He chose to do that. In fact, the reason He chose to do that was because you, just so that you wouldn't be quite so repulsive. He died so that when God looked on you, He could be pleased. That's a great Savior, isn't it? That's the truest friend you'll ever have in your life, right there. Jesus said in John 15, 13, the great, that greater love has no one than this, that someone laid down his life for his friends. Listen, Jesus did that for you. No one else in this life has done that for you. Not your spouse, not your parents, not your best friend. Jesus has done that. And according to Romans 5, He did it while we were still sinners, while we were still enemies of God. No one else, let me say that again, no one else would go to the lengths that Jesus has gone to to secure your well-being. I mean, I think of even the people who love me the most in life. And they haven't just not loved me from time to time. They've actually hurt me. Sometimes in significant ways. But not Jesus. He is truly the greatest friend you'll ever have. And in just a short while, you'll get to see Him face to face. It's not going to be a dream anymore. Or wishful thinking. Again, figuratively speaking, you're going to walk around the corner and you're going to see your groom standing there at the altar and that day you thought would never come, it will be there. And it will be real. You'll be reunited with your dearest friend and you'll be joined together never to be separated ever again. Don't you long for that day? I I, I think of the end of the book of Revelation where where Jesus says, Surely I'm coming soon. And John responds by writing, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. And can't you feel the ache in that when when John writes that? Understand, John, John got to actually see the Lord Jesus in this life. He experienced firsthand the power of Jesus and the wisdom of Jesus and His patient and tender care for John. And when I put myself in John's shoes, being the last living disciple, having survived some 60 or so years after the death of Jesus, the thing I'd be thinking is, when is my turn? When is it my turn? How long do I have to keep waiting before I get to see my best friend again? Can't you identify with that longing when you see Jesus in the way that the Scripture describes Him? If so, then here's the great news that Jesus outlines in this passage. You may not have to wait that much longer. It could happen before I reach the end of this sermon. In the very next moment, you may be suddenly translated up into the heavens to meet your Savior in the air. That should give you great hope. Great hope. I tell you, there's a sense in which every day is a good day when you realize that you're one step closer to seeing your Savior face to face. Have you ever been excited to go and visit a a good friend you haven't seen in a while? The days pass by and it's like they almost can't get there fast enough. And as the days pass by, the excitement starts to build because you know you're almost there. 
Well, that's how it ought to be for you every day that you're in Christ. That excitement should just be constantly building as you realize, I'm almost there. The day's almost there. Who knows? Maybe it's today. Maybe He'll surprise me and come visit me before I go to Him. I understand you may be sitting there thinking to yourself, you know, Ryan, you don't understand though, I don't long for that. I know I should long for that. I know I ought to, but I just can't get excited over it. If that's what you're thinking, then I have some more good news. That is, Jesus is going to fix that too when He returns. You see, the only reason why you don't delight in Jesus right now is because of your sin. That's what your sin is at its core. It's a failure to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And at the fall, that part of us that was created to delight in God became corrupted. And now we can't love God apart from the grace that Christ supplies. We are entirely unable to find joy in God. This is why Jesus gives us the Holy Spirit. He gives the Holy Spirit to make our spiritually dead souls alive to God so that we might glorify Him in our delight and faith. We've received the down payment of that Holy Spirit now, but there's a full measure of it yet to come when we meet Jesus. What this means is that when Jesus comes, you're going to be totally transformed, and not just bodily, but spiritually as well. You're going to actually delight in the things of God in the ways that He's ordained. Again, think about that. You know, there are so many things in this life which I know are good and meant to bring glory to God when received with thankfulness. The problem, though, is that I can't enjoy them as I ought because of the constant idolatry I'm fighting in my heart. I keep turning to things that are not good, and I delight in them. Or I take the things that are good, and I twist them into something that isn't good because my heart is an idol factory. Jesus is going to liberate me from that. He's going to liberate you from that. That's the whole symbolism between Israel and their deliverance from Egypt. It parallels God's deliverance of His people from the bondage of sin in the kingdom of Satan to the freedom. Mark that, the freedom of service in the kingdom of God. Do you understand? Sin is bondage. It promises freedom and and joy, but it doesn't deliver, not in any meaningful way. Instead, it causes you to destroy those things that do bring true joy. It causes you to be enslaved to things like fear of man or pleasure or material things. And then it never gives you the lasting joy it promises. It only leaves you empty and wanting more. Jesus is going to free you of that. He'll not only destroy the wicked at His return, He'll destroy the wickedness in you as well. He'll deliver you from the anger that brings so much pain into your life. Or the anxiety that causes you to live in constant fear. Or the depression that makes you lament over the apparent hopelessness of life. That's all going to be done away with. The scripture says He's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. So it's all going away because at the appearance of His glory, at the appearance of His glory, the fog that keeps you from fully seeing and savoring the beauty of God, both in His person and through what He has made, that fog that keeps you enslaved to the idols of this world is going to be utterly burned away by the brilliance of Christ. And finally, you'll be able to rejoice in Him. Isn't that something to look forward to? Don't you want to be free from your sin? Well, again, it could happen in a moment. Perhaps it will happen when you die, but it might happen sooner too. Either way, every day you wake up is one day closer to freedom from your sin. And that should bring hope now. In other words, you should already feel the tremors which announce this coming transformation as you find joy in the coming hope of your imminent deliverance from sin now. There's one other thing to look forward to about Jesus' return as well. It's probably the first thing that we think of when we think about the hope of His return, and that's the physical restoration that will occur at that time. Again, this is probably the first thing we think of when we think of the return of Christ, so I don't think I need to elaborate on this much, but I'll just state it simply. Disease, aging, hunger, and most importantly, death. That's all going to be eliminated at the return of Christ. When He comes to gather His church, our bodies will be instantly transformed into a different and better state. 
And not just our bodies, but the world itself is going to be in some way altered so that it begins to exhibit pre-flood and perhaps even pre-fall conditions. That's, that's remarkable. You know, my neighbor uh, passed away last week. He was an older gentleman with a, with a lot of physical ailments that made his life very difficult. Um, he had uh, parts of his legs amputated, for instance, on account of diabetes, and this made it very hard for him to move around. But he was a Christian. And when we were standing in line at his visitation on Wednesday, do you know what his wife told my kids? She said, you know, Ken doesn't have half a leg anymore. You know, he's probably real happy right now with how he can get around. And it's true. Jesus restores our bodies. They're going to be restored to a pristine condition when he returns. Actually, even better than anything that we've experienced in this life because they'll no longer have been corrupted by the fall. And with those bodies, we'll be able to enjoy a restored creation and with souls that have been calibrated to perfectly enjoy the things that God has made in a way that brings Him glory. Again, isn't that going to be awesome? I mean, have you ever wondered what life would be like if you had hit the genetic lottery? (laughs) Maybe if you had the brain of an Isaac Newton or a William Shakespeare and, and the body of a LeBron James and the voice of a Bing Crosby or Billie Holiday. Have you ever wondered about the ways your enjoyment of the creation might be enhanced if you had their brain or their body or their talents. In a sense, it's going to happen only better at the resurrection. And again, it's going to be matched with a spiritual transformation that enables you to enjoy those experiences with utter purity of heart and complete thankfulness to God. That's something to look forward to every day, every moment. It draws nearer. Again, perhaps even today, perhaps today, you will be so transformed. Next week we'll explore further how Jesus applies the suddenness of His return in this context. But I think this is a good place to start with. With hope. We take this thought and we're encouraged by it. It means that every moment the day of our redemption draws near and it could very well take place even sooner than we may think. That gives us something to look forward to, something to hope in. Even when at times the world seems to be falling down around us or our own lives are so shattered that we just can't seem to find any good in it. Even in our worst or lowest moments when we're so caught in sin or bitterness or disappointment or depression, we always have something to look forward to and with great expectancy. The day of our Savior's return is drawing near. As he testifies to his old friend John, surely I am coming soon, and to this we reply, Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. Let's pray.